Hello and welcome to the Social Market Foundation podcast, bringing you news, views and expertise from Britain's leading centrist think tank. I'm James Kirkup, the director of the SMF. Before I came here, I was a political journalist at Westminster, where I used to spend my time talking to politicians, officials and other insiders about politics and policy. I'm going to be doing the same in these podcasts. This podcast is part of our Ask the Expert series in conjunction with the Economic and Social Research Council, where we bring publicly funded academics and experts to Westminster and use all their learning to enrich the policy-making process. Today, we're going to be talking about housing with Professor Christine Whitehead, who's the Emeritus Professor of Housing Economics at the LSE, and Jeff Matsu, who's co-investigator at the UK Collaborative Centre for Housing Evidence. So, housing. It's one of those issues that's everywhere. Everybody cares about housing, everyone's got an opinion about it. It's almost certain to be high on the political agenda for the next government and the one after that. So, we're very lucky to have a couple of the country's leading experts here to talk us through what's really going on in housing and really what we should do about the problems and challenges in housing. So, Jeff, this year we're going to get one new Prime Minister possibly more than one, we don't know. When a prime minister takes office, they call their officials in and they say, look, I want to do something about subject area X. We've got a pretty good idea that housing is going to be on that list because it matters. What should the new prime minister, any new prime minister, want to try and achieve on housing? And how how should they do it, do you think? I think one of the key things that was highlighted in the housing white paper from a couple of years ago was this need to get to a more neutral landscape for tenure and so that we move away from the pronounced shift towards home ownership as being the ideal and basically the marker for someone's success in life and that we actually need to embrace the rental market as something that is not second best and that it does serve its place within the housing market system more broadly. And without embracing that from a societal perspective, mm. I think we will continue to face the challenges. That so we- that's a cultural objective, really, isn't it? It's to try and challenge this idea prevalent in you know, media commentary, sort of it's almost embedded in national consciousness, that everybody wants to buy a house, that owner occupation is success and anything else is not success. Isn't this sort of something that people have been talking about for a generation, that hey, we should look to the continent, we should look to Germany and the and the rest, where actually renting is regarded as perfectly respectable, and we, we've never quite conquered our national addiction to home to owner occupation? I think that it, it, the addiction becomes almost self-fulfilling in the sense that the more the media talks about home ownership, the more government panders policy to supporting mm. what people want to hear and and read about, then you basically get this, this virtuous circle where you end up in a situation where you really don't want to be. And it's once you're in that cycle, it's very difficult to extract yourself. And that's where I think we really need strong leadership from the next prime minister to be able to have the courage. And I think a lot of it is about courage to mm. say, you know, this is the priority and this is how we can address some of the dysfunctions in the housing system. If we get down to the the nitty-gritty of policy, what sort of policy changes or interventions are necessary to shift that balance from owner occupation onto a better quality private rented sector, do you think? I think one aspect is certainly taxation, trying to make sure that we don't have a panoply of fiscal interventions with various credits and subsidies, which are difficult to assess in terms of their net effect on the housing market. Mm. And so currently we have just too many 
interventions with very unclear timeframes. And a lot of these are overlapping in very different ways. And that makes it very, it creates an environment of uncertainty for developers. It makes it uncertain for potential homeowners. And it makes it very difficult for communities to develop more vibrant communities that incorporate things like not just physical structures, but also design value, placemaking. We're really shifting towards an economy and a society where it's less about the physical aspects. People are willing to share accommodation. People are willing to share amenities. And I think mm. government policy needs to address that when looking at the housing system more holistically. You mentioned tax. Now, so far, we are at the time we speak, we are still in the midst of a contest, a race for the Conservative Party leadership. Yeah, housing hasn't come up that much in that contest, but there has been a couple of suggestions. There's been some mention of stamp duty. This is something that some Conservatives get very excited about. They think it's it's important that it is cut. What are your views on stamp duty? Good tax, bad tax? What happens if you if you cut it dramatically? The first thing that would happen is a, a very large loss of revenue to the government. And yeah. so that needs to be addressed. It brings in, was it 12, 13 billion? Yes, yes. Whether you reduce it or eliminate it to something that's more recurrent, like council tax, the economic ideal would be one where there's less of a reliance on stamp duty because that does distort negatively activity in prices, volumes, and also the timing of transactions. So there's, from an economic perspective, nothing particularly ideal about stamp duty. But then you have to ask yourself, how do we transition to a different tax system? What is the process and how do we get there? And I think that process and transition is something that we really need to think critically about because the policy tools are there. It's not easy to transition from one system to another in terms of tax because there's vested interest people will be negatively affected government and again this comes back to the prime minister's leadership needs to be able to have the courage to say on net this is beneficial for society there are going to be winners and losers and then you know hopefully over uh, probably not the lifetime of this prime minister but maybe successive prime ministers will gradually shift the tax landscape to more of a recurrent tax system. So a recurrent, you know, something that fulfills approximately the current function of council tax. Yes. You know, something that you know, is paid on a regular basis as opposed to stamp duty, which is essentially, it's transactional. It, you, if you don't sell your house, you never pay stamp duty. But everybody pays council tax. Yes. And these things don't happen and shouldn't happen in isolation either. It's not you just get rid of stamp duty and introduce council tax because there are distributional consequences in the sense that uh, council tax is paid by the occupant, which could be a renter. And so then there needs to be a holistic evaluation of what does that mean for the other taxes in the portfolio? What does that mean for income tax and how that is being treated? So you really want to make sure that we don't just pull the levers on one or two switches, but then we kind of look at the system as a whole and say, okay, what is the net effect of this particular tax change? And I think that's very critical. And yes, as you say, the, the politics of this you know, are all because any of these changes that you're sketching out there are going to make some group of people unhappy, quite possibly a group of people who are already in possession of highly valued property, uh, and those people tend to have political clout, you know, which is the, the, main, the main restriction on being able to make change here. Yes, there's always will be winners and losers. And I think the role of good government is to, again, have the courage and, and try to formulate policies where the net impact on society is a positive one. The other yeah, policy that probably most frequently gets talked about in mainstream 
political debate around housing anyway, and certainly is cherished by a lot of members of the current government, is helped to buy. You've got some research on which suggests that you know, some people are quite, are quite keen on help to buy and would like to see more of it. Is that right? Uh, and yet some other people have some doubts about its effectiveness as a policy. What, uh, where, where are you on help to buy? My view is that it probably has passed its expiration date in terms of its positive impact on um, the wider economy. Again, this is something that there are going to be winners and losers, but it has distorted prices and the transfer of the benefit of help to buy isn't as clear as let me say there has been a net additionality that has come on board that is a positive thing and so if we get rid of help to buy then we have to ask ourselves okay where would this additional um, flows come from but having said that we have to when we look at the evidence we find that a lot of the transactions that are taking place under help to buy are transactions that would probably have happened anyway maybe there's there are certainly some transactions that wouldn't have happened but in the main, a lot of them would have happened. And a lot of people are just trading up to bigger accommodation, better accommodation because of what Help to Buy offers. I mean, isn't, isn't that quite a damning verdict to reach on a policy that effectively it's just handing quite significant public money subsidies to transactions, you know, people who already had the means and the, the intent to buy? It is. And I think sometimes we lose sight of where the sort of the trajectory of the ball is headed. One thing that often gets missed is the risk that the taxpayer takes on through a scheme like Help to Buy. This is a loan that is being extended on behalf of government representing the taxpayers. And so if or when we come to the next housing downturn and the next recession, it's not a matter of if, it's when. And when, when will that be, by the way? That's anyone's guess. But, you know, it wouldn't be surprising if in, you know, the next five years, or so, we have some kind of recession. But again, we are in an environment where there is a lot of uncertainty. We, we're looking at a global scenario where there's lots of trade tensions. There's things with Brexit that makes us ask as a country where we're headed. And so should these types of downturns happen, we do need to ask ourselves, is this a prudent use of taxpayer funds in terms of risk? Christine, I'm gonna ask, yeah, I'll ask you the same question. Um, new prominence is coming in. Housing probably on, on on the list of priorities there somewhere. What are your three top three one you know, one two three four pick a number you know, three recommendations to the new prime minister on housing? Try not to stress numbers quite so hard because the aspiration of three hundred thousand per annum they will look as though they have failed and they will have failed. And anyway, if you do three hundred thousand per annum, it will not solve the affordability crisis. So that is not to say you shouldn't build as many as you can, which are well-built and in the right places, but it shouldn't be, well, we've got to have 300,000 pounds. So that's, that's yeah, so can you just, sorry to interrupt, but can, you, can we unravel that a little bit? Because obviously there's a, a lot of people have a view that this is quite, this is just a simple question, isn't it? If you're worried about house prices, build more houses and therefore prices will fall, you, housing will become more affordable, we'll all be happier and better, and that's end of story. Why, why, you, you're, you seem to be suggesting that just building more houses isn't the sole answer to housing and affordability and everyone's general oh. level of grumpiness about housing. Just building more housing will not significantly affect affordability of itself unless you build an awful lot more than 300,000 per annum. As we do not have the supply capacity to do that, 
is not a very helpful way of doing it. What you would have to do is to get an enormous amount of additional housing built and persuade people it was going to go on being built for a very long time. And that is not really within the Prime Minister's capacities. What is the problem about the affordability story is that it's the affordability is about people's capacity to pay. And so we need housing in relationship to people's wish to demand more housing as their incomes increase. And on the whole, if your income increases by 1%, you want slightly more than 1% housing. So what we have is a situation where we must take account of what the incomes are, as well as just the simple numbers of households. Yes, as people get richer, they uh, they, they want more and bigger housing. They the, want better quality uh, housing, exactly. they more, want more it in better. better places, they yeah. want they, they will push up the overall costs of housing. As long as we're, we're, we're troubled by that pesky economic growth, this is going to be, yeah, yeah, this, yeah. this will be a problem. Okay, so, so that was your first recommendation, let me move on from numbers, um, and I interrupted you. What's, what's number two? I think number two really does have to be about housing standards because we are in a very difficult position both for new build and for the existing stock. Some of the new build which is being built is really not of adequate standard. Government policy of permitted development is allowing buildings which are not suited for housing to be transferred into housing and are providing very inadequate accommodation. So while it may be that this pushes up the numbers for one year, we're trying to get this new Prime Minister not to worry about his first year, but to get on to his third, fourth, fifth and seventh year. And recommendation number three? I think has to be around the private rented sector. The issue about owner-occupation and private renting, it is not the case, however much people believe it is, that other countries don't <laughs> like owner-occupation. <laughs> We did a study, agreed quite a long while ago, but it's still consistently the case. But if you are a sort of traditional household, in other words, there are two adults and maybe a couple of children, then if you're 40-odd, you want owner-occupation everywhere. So if you look at the 45-year-old in Germany yes. of similar type... The, the, the mythical 45-year-old German. It's always, the, it's always Germany. Yeah, well, Germany, Japan, yeah. it doesn't matter which. We did it over 21 countries. Mm. And nearly everybody at 45, if they're a sort of what we used to call a normal household, yes. would want to be an owner-occupation. And the rates were at 80% plus in Germany, just as they were in Britain. Now, the issue in Britain has always been that we tried to push people into owner-occupation too early. People were getting into it when it was higher risk, when they knew that they were likely to want to move, and it was rather an expensive process. What we wanted, and we all wrote about it 20 years ago, was to move it to a situation where people didn't try to buy until they were in their 30s. We've done that, but we've done it in the most unpositive way. And what we've done is push lots and lots of people into the private rented sector, and the private rented sector does not have the attributes of a reasonable home for many of the households that are in it. Yeah, I mean, yes, on that question of the growth, the largely unrecognised, I suppose, growth of the PRS, um, can you say a little bit more just about the numbers and more on the causes as to why private renting has become a much bigger part of our housing landscape? And also, I suppose, why, why hasn't national politics, national conversation noticed that yet? Because if you... If you look at newspapers and the politicians, you get the impression that there are two forms of housing in this country. There's owner-occupation and then there's social housing, not much else. Why has the PRS grown and why, why don't we talk about it more? Well, I think that uh, it's partly that people don't catch up with reality. 
They didn't notice when London started to grow and they didn't notice when the private rented sector started to grow. It was expected that the private rented sector would decline and would only really be for young and mobile households and people who were coming to London for a year or so, this type of thing. But because the social sector was not able to expand and because house prices began to make things unaffordable, but particularly because the older generation needed something to invest their money in and the easiest thing to invest your money in is housing. It's quite difficult to do many of the other things. It started to grow when we put a mortgage in place which allowed you to borrow reasonably cheaply in order to buy a second home or to a rental property. There's a, I think it's a, an Institute of Fiscal Studies figure. It's a stunning figure of like one in six people over 50 own a second property, isn't it? Uh, the second stunning figure is that the figure for millennials is not quite so low as you might expect. Oh, what is it? Stunned me. Uh, an enormous number of people, if they bought or they were left something or something like that, when they move, they keep the home mm. and, and let it out. Yes. They may let it out because they're moving to Liverpool and may expect to come back to London, or they may simply let it out because they think it's the best option for their money. And then they'll borrow to buy another one, maybe, or they'll rent in the other place. But as a result of this, in the last 20 years, the size of a private rented sector has doubled. It's made up still significantly of people for whom it is a sensible type of tenure because it doesn't have so many transactions costs. But for poorer households who are really looking to live in this local authority and stay with with kids in these types of schools, it's completely disastrous. And it's also very expensive because the tenancy can be between six and 12 months and it may cost you, you've got to put up a deposit, you've got to pay transactions costs. So people are being told that they can't stay in property. They then have to find another one. That may cost them a thousand, two thousand pounds. That just that process of moving. A move to longer, more secure tenancies in the PRS would be beneficial. Yes, and that's something which we find internationally, and if we use Germany again, they've got an indefinite tenure, so has many of the countries in Europe, and now Scotland have all got indefinite tenancies. It makes a great deal of sense for longer-term investors in the private rented sector because they get stable and growing rental income based in relationship to the incomes of their tenants. That was a question about what the Prime Minister, new Prime Minister, should do. Uh, just to finish off, and I'll, I'll put the same question to Jeff again in a second, what's the one thing in housing that a new Prime Minister definitely shouldn't do? What's the one mistake not to make? I think putting additional subsidy into owner-occupation at this stage is not a good thing. Sorry. But... Politically, it is quite a sensible thing. (laughs) And so it is something where the Prime Minister will, particularly if it's one type of Prime Minister, will be thinking about how to do it like the Australian government did it with their election this time, which was to offer something to young first-time buyers which doesn't cost for government very much, doesn't do much to the market, but does do a lot to the politics. Uh, what was that Australian offer? It was a guarantee on a mortgage. Guarantee mortgage. Excellent. Lovely. Your do not do, not do recommendation, what's the, 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 the main pitfall on housing that the new Prime Minister should try their best to avoid? 
I think the new prime minister should try not to continue doing what has currently been done <laughs> in many areas. And the one area I would focus on is the tenant experience in the rented sector. It really does need to improve just because so many more people are living either in the PRS or in social rented sector. And quality really needs to be improved. And it's not just going to happen overnight. It's not just going to happen on its own. It needs just as much TLC that owner occupation gets to its value various credit subsidies and tax deductions. And so we need to level the playing field. And so that's not happening now. We're not seeing it. And so government should stop that. <laughs> Excellent. Good. Lovely. Thank you both very much. And that's all from us. This has been the Social Market Foundation podcast in association with the Economic and Social Research Council as part of our Ask the Expert series. Thank you to our experts, Professor Christine Whitehead and Jeffrey Matsu. Thank you to Barbara Lambert for producing this fine podcast. Uh, and thank you for joining us. Until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>